Welcome to the Watershed Lit Podcast Channel. I'm Greg Wilhelm, Director of Mason Creative Writing at George Mason University. Each semester, we bring six highly acclaimed authors and poets to campus for small group workshops with our MFA students, followed by a public reading in the evening. These events are presented in partnership with Mason Libraries. In spring 2021, MFA faculty member Tim Denevi led a conversation with Ted Conover. Ted is the author of six books and is best known for New Jack, Guarding Sing Sing, an account of his 10 months spent working as a corrections officer at New York's Sing Sing Prison. Now we present Tim Denevi in conversation with Ted Conover. How are you all doing tonight? It's great to be here virtually. Great to have you all here too. And most of all, it's great to have Ted Conover, an amazing writer of nonfiction uh, who will be joining us for a reading and a conversation. You know, it's rare that you have a writer that executes in their style um, in a John McPhee or Joan Didion level on the page, but then also is able to articulate the intricacies of the process through which they create their work. I always think of Ted Williams managing the, you know, uh, Washington senators after just retiring and uh, being able to talk about hitting for days while also still at that age, being able to do it quite well. Um, And I I just think it's a treat to have him out. So uh, I'm looking forward to hearing his writing. And I'm also looking forward to talking about writing with him and with all of you. So Ted, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Tim. I really appreciate uh, the introduction. So uh, this won't be a long reading. Guessing less than 10 minutes. Um, and tonight I will read from two different pieces of writing. The first is my first book, which is called Rolling Nowhere. It's about travels I had with railroad tramps while still an undergraduate. The travel was the basis of my anthropology thesis and ethnography. It was written in the third person. And I, I felt I had a first person story to tell about it. And that's what Rolling Nowhere is. Fast forward then about 30 years, and I took my son on a freight train ride and wrote about that for Outside Magazine. So you will hear from me at two uh, very different moments of my life and uh, writing career, and I hope you like it. The boxcar on the freight from McCook, Nebraska rocked from side to side as the train slowed and crossed a section of bad track on its arrival into Denver. Brakes squealed and doors banged, every sound magnified by the huge echo chamber that's an empty boxcar. My fellow passenger had not spoken during most of the trip, which was okay since I probably couldn't have heard him anyway. But now as we entered the yards, he started to talk. God damn coal trains, he muttered, surveying the ones we'd have to climb over to make our way out of the yard. I stood in the open doorway of the boxcar, surveying the Denver night. Hey, get back, he hissed, pointing to the railroad control tower we were about to pass. They'll put the dicks on us. I retreated to the darkness at the back of the car. They got a mission here, I asked him, wondering where I'd spend the night. 23rd and Lawrence, he said with little pleasure, but it's too late to check in. You missed the sermon. Hell, you missed dinner too, but that's okay. All they serve is some goddamn beans somebody made 50 years ago up in Laramie. What I do, I sleep in one of them bad order cars they got lined up on the UP tracks down there. They don't move them to the shop till morning. I I nodded, adding that I was unfamiliar with the routine in Denver. Oh, it's a good town for eating, he said. You got the Sally at 21st and Larimer at 9 a.m. 
bologna sandwiches at the Holy Ghost Church at 10, dinner at the Catholic Worker at 4. He went on. A Denver native, I'd never heard of these places. The train stopped with a jerk that nearly knocked us off our feet. I was cautioned to wait until they broke the air, the signal that the locomotives had disconnected themselves and the train was going no farther. Finally came the whoosh. My companion signaled me to follow, and stealthily we climbed down from the boxcar and wound our way over the coal trains and out of the yard, entering downtown just north of Union Station. Home looked foreign from this angle. My name's Ted, I started. He kept walking. Well, Ted, one thing you got to know about Denver, if you got two pennies in your pocket, separate them. I'll probably see you tomorrow. And he turned, bedroll over his shoulder, and vanished down Larimer Street. This next scene is also from Rolling Nowhere, but it takes place in Haver, Montana, a railroad division point on the Burlington Northern Yard. And I was sitting in a hobo jungle, as they called it, or campsite, with a group of four men. Uh, it was two pairs of tramps who had met up and started hanging out the day before. Normally, the difficulty of buying wine kept the supplies small, the buzzes moderate, and the conversation civil. But one afternoon, when a concerted effort resulted in more wine to go around, things changed between the tramps. Roger, for one, started prying. You look young, man, he said to me. How old are you? The tramps guessed on my suggestion. 27, 25, 23. 22 was the real age, I answered. Roger persisted, his line of questioning rude for a tramp. What was I doing on the road? Where was I going next? Why didn't I get a steady job? Suddenly, Pete launched into Roger. Why are you on the road? Because I wanted to fucking cross the country, said Roger, now very drunk. Because I got nobody in South Carolina. Well, what do you got here, asked Pete. Nothing. What do you got in the next town you go to? Whatever I find, I'm going to Texas. What are you going to do in Texas? I'm going to work if I can. Work at what? Anything I can to get a start. I'll look, then I'll look for something better. What I had in mind was a fucking labor pool. You ain't going to make a fucking thing at a labor pool. Enough for a room, maybe. Future wasn't bright, Roger conceded. He'd been living in South Carolina, his home state, working in a textile mill. After his divorce, he'd moved to Portland to stay with his sister, Sue, and make a new start. Unable to find work, he'd been supported by her, and finally, as he explained it, he became disgusted. I says, hey, Susie, I need a pack of cigarettes. Like that, man, you know? Well, fuck, I ain't going to live like that, sponging my own sister for cigarettes. I mean, if you can't even take care of yourself, what's the point of living? So I got me a fucking job washing fucking dishes in a fucking restaurant. I met Tiny here and got me enough money to buy me a backpack and a sleeping bag, and we took off. Pete seemed satisfied. Had Roger been more sober, he might not have missed the chance to ask Pete the same question. Why, you can talk to every tramp you want to. He's got a different story, said Beebe. And Beebe was the one of these tramps who I was afraid of. He was strong and, um, and mean. I didn't have no old lady behind it like you. I couldn't stand my old stepdad, so I run away when I was 14 years old. Went and joined the goddamn army. Couldn't stand it, so I joined the Navy. Couldn't stand that either, so I got out of both of them. When I come out, it was 1966, and I've been on this goddamn rail ever since. Among BB's other employers, I'd learned later, were a tugboat operator on the Gulf Coast, a Masonite Corporation, and a carnival. The afternoon drew late, and still the wine flowed. On the next bottle of Thunderbird, Roger decided to go dead man. In other words, he threw away the screw top, which meant the wine would lose its sparkle and get dirty if it weren't finished in one sitting. 
Tired of the whole scene, I volunteered to make a grocery store run for dinner supplies. As I stood to leave, Roger, barely able to speak, said, Hey, wait a minute. Here, you going to town? Buy me some cigarettes, would you? Marlboro's. He reached in his shirt pocket and drew out a five-dollar bill. Hey, I thought you said you guys was broke, B.B. accused Roger. Oh, well, uh, I just found that, stammered Roger. He was cut off in mid-sentence as B.B. leaped to his feet, took two steps, swung his long arm, and landed a fist in Roger's face. Roger, on the car seat, tumbled backwards in, uh, into the dirt, legs in the air. Kicking furiously, one of his feet caught the pursuing B.B. in the face. But B.B. was undaunted and fell on him, punching. The two rolled about the jungle, the blood on their faces forming a dark red mud as it mingled with the fine dirt. With Tiny and B.B. on the edge of their chairs, I wondered if the fight would spread. Roger finally eluded B.B.'s grasp for a moment, long enough to get his feet and sprint out of the jungle, grabbing his blanket along the way. B.B. let him go. He devoted the next half, hour, next half hour to describing Roger in the worst terms he knew. That two-faced motherfucker, he summed up. He's only been on the road a couple of months. He don't deserve to call himself a tramp. Then he turned to me. There's a lesson to be learned here, son, said B.B. On the trails, you don't trust nobody. Ain't that right, fellers? Pete and Tiny nodded in agreement. Next section is from Outside Magazine. In 1984, when I published Rolling Nowhere, America had more than a dozen freight railroads instead of just seven. Reagan was trying to bring down the USSR. Trains still had cabooses, and I was single and didn't have a son and daughter. By 1994, the year my wife Margot gave birth to Asa, gave birth to Asa, our son, all that had changed. And something else happened on that day. I began to worry. Mostly I worried in the way that all parents worry. But in addition, I began to worry in a way that was fairly singular. I worried about whether and when that seed I had planted, the idea of riding freights, along with several others, might intersect with the curiosity of a growing boy. Of course, I wanted him to read that first book of mine, as well as the others that followed. And when he was 14 or 15, I gave him copies. But when he didn't immediately pick up Rolling Nowhere, let's just say I was fine with that. Then early last year, I saw him reading it. Uh-oh. Great book, Dad, he said as I passed his bedroom. Yeah, you liked it? Yeah, I liked it a lot. About a week later, it came the moment I'd been fearing. We may have been in the car. You know your book, Dad? Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask, if I ever wanted to go on a trip like that, would you teach me what to do? You mean how to ride the rails? I already knew what he meant. Yeah. Saying no, we both knew would be hypocritical. So instead, I offered the compromise that had already been worked out by two sides of myself the young man adventurer, and the father adventurer who's a little more careful now. Well, I would if we could go together. He didn't hesitate. Sure. I'm just going to stop there because the, uh, the next section where we actually get on trains and uh, head out into the wildness is um, it's, it's hard to stop in the middle of. But if you're interested in more of that, the article's on my website and other places. Well, thank you, Ted. That was great. I loved how we got the more current, wiser version of you <laughs> talking about immersion um, in contrast to the younger you. And can imagine your son reading that too, what you just read to us, which is a really nice pairing of both of those. You know, we'll just have a, a, a discussion together about some of the things you and I have been talking about already and that you talked about our students with. Um, and again, everyone, Ted has a wonderful uh, craft book, which I have uh, 
recently uh, very much enjoyed uh, called Immersion um, and that I um, recommend you you check out. And if you're in my classes, I'm sure you'll have to at one point. But before that, go ahead. Um, so Ted, I was just thinking about, Ted talked today about stakes and about how do you create tension? How do you create this energy and generative force within narrative that keeps your reader interested and most of all engaged in what's going on? And I was thinking about, um, just to have a conversation about it, you, you begin your book, New Jack, by kind of starting in medias res, you start when you're already a corrections officer. And for everyone, um, Ted actually became a corrections officer and then went to New Jack Prison and wrote about that experience. So I thought it was fascinating that you d decide to begin on a specific day um, after you're no longer, um, you know, after your your months in, and you go through the step by step process in a dramatized, slow, cinematic, engaging way, um, and then you flash back, and or then you move back to how you became. A corrections officer going through it and i wonder if you were thinking about some of the things you talked about stakes um establishing them early which i think that does so well and if you could talk about that decision and stakes in general yeah so i uh gosh it took me three years to get hired as a new york state corrections officer and then i went through training and then i got assigned to sing sing on a friday and had to show up there on monday so where does that story begin uh i need to start my book am i gonna start when I first had the idea of becoming a prison officer? Or is it when the New Yorker assigned me to write about a family of, of prison officers in upstate? That's actually the project that got this started. Never happened because the state wouldn't let me uh, go to work with them. Where do you start the story? And I had tried 12 different ways to start it when I met a friend of mine for a drink. He's a documentary filmmaker. Um, named Stephen Ives, and uh, he said, how's it going? And you kind of appreciate that question. You kind of hate it if it's not going very well, as uh, you, maybe you know, and um, I hope you don't. And I told him, I can't figure out where to begin. And he said, okay, what are you thinking of? And, and of the scenarios I had in mind, he said, oh, well, if it's me and I'm, I'm starting a movie, I'm going to take the camera and start in the parking lot where you've just changed uh in this decrepit locker room into your uniform and you're gonna you told me you climb up these stairs that take you over the railroad track because sing sing actually spans the metro north railroad and then you got to go through the front door and show them your id and let them see your lunch sack and and step by step you get you know you pass all these gates until you get into this cell block where you work he said i would just take the reader with you i said okay that's what I'll do. That's a great idea. And um, and it speaks to the point of storytelling, you know, having things in common over various media. So narr narrative is is uh, so common now in documentary filmmaking, verite filmmaking. Everybody looks for narrative in in their uh, their their films, even, you know, essays and poetry have narrative elements. And so I pick that scene as the starting point. And then, as you noted, I back up and I talk about the training. And then I move in the, into the future where I'm actually a new Jack, a rookie officer, and trying to manage the incredible stress of being uh, challenged all day long, both by prisoners, uh, a lot uh, more fearsome uh, in appearance than I am, and also by supervisors who are not always helpful uh, 
it's it's a very macho culture and and you're being tested all the time and uh it's stressful it was stressful reading it <laughs> i think you, you did such a nice job <laughs> in a good way you did such a nice job of exactly what you just said also characterizing the supervisors who you know may in certain situations be people who've suffered immense trauma yeah. um some of your supervisors um and who you you just i, I think it's it's so fascinating how you let the reader do the work in your characterizations of them to arrive at a point of empathy that may then later be revealed through backstory or just implied, but is created in the way that you depict them. It has to exist there first before we get any additional information. And that complexity um, to everyone, I, I recommend reading that book. It takes off right from the start and then just continues to build on itself. It's, it's fantastic. Um, on that note, I guess another question I have is, you know, one of the hardest things to do is to switch between a good dramatized moment like you wrote about, uh, you read today, um, the fight in the, in the train car, and then the necessary context that we need. I mean, at the beginning of New Jack, you're doing that. You're, you're giving us a map of a place. It's like travel writing almost, that you're bringing us into a world we don't know. And the economy that you have in being able to give us the necessary context that we need, the background, the information that takes away the questions the reader may have so they can engage the scene on the page. And then also dramatize for us and create for us um, these cinematic moments. Um, I wonder if you could talk about the process of switching back and forth and how you have dealt with it differently throughout your many books. It's definitely a process of trial and error. And it's also a thing that I, I think I've gotten better at the more I've tried, the more I've had to try again. It's partly intuitive, but it's also not partly intuitive. It's um, I've learned to start with the same kind of process, which is to sort of gather my elements in front of me. What scenes do I have? What are the really important stories I have to tell? Does the order, will the order work? Uh, will it be okay to go back to the training academy after already having walked into the prison? Will the readers stick with me if I leave chronology for that? I think, yeah. But then I've got another big chronology question, which is how about the history of a place like Sing Sing? Which is you know 170 years old or something it's um it had the electric the electric chair for years and years julius and ethel rosenberg i mean it has all of this history that has to get in there somewhere and it's not going to come in over sandwiches with my fellow co's right so i'm gonna have to pause the storytelling again and then tell the history is another story but i i save most of it for a chapter and that was one of the harder decisions I had to make. Where do I put this? So yes, it's a question of order and it's a question of emphasis. A very brief moment that had a big emotional impact or that taught me a lot can get several paragraphs. But a month that was boring can get squeezed down to a couple paragraphs, right? And so it's a process of expansion and shrinking and and then the thing I need to also say is that over time, I've learned that I need to think about that the job of writing while I'm still reporting, because I'm going to need a place to end, let's say. We talked about the beginning. As you know, the, the book uh, New Jack ends right after New Year's Eve, when I have swapped shifts with fellow workers so that I can be there when the clock strikes 12, because I've heard they go crazy in the cell block where I work, that people set things on fire, they uh, 
they throw stuff um, that it's sort of this this kind of celebration and kind of scary mayhem that might get them all hurt a little bit. And um, so I'd known before I quit that I needed something to end on. And I just prayed somebody would swap shifts with me. There's only a skeleton crew working there at night. And yeah, you're laughing because you know, that's the easiest swap you can ever imagine is, is to tell somebody you want to work for them on New Year's Eve. But no, it's not a coincidence that I had that to end on. I thought, and uh, people I was working with, my editor and my agent actually had said, how are you going to end? I kept saying, oh, I, I'm getting close to finishing my time as a corrections officer. And they would just say, well, okay, who are your main characters? What happens? Where is it going to end? And, and until I could answer all of those, they said, I, I think you better keep working, which is very cruel of them, but, but good advice. <laughs> I think and I think that's great advice. It's hard sometimes because one of the beauties, one of the great aspects of that book, and I think it's a decision you make, is um, at the beginning at least you're not dramatizing or bringing into the narrative the act of creating the narrative, worrying about how it's going to turn out. You know, you don't do that metatextual aspect of worrying how it's going to turn out as writing. So that doesn't mean that the writer, of course, is not worrying how it's going to turn out while they're experiencing it. And I think that's good for young writers to hear too. Um, I just have maybe two or three more questions before we'll open it up. Um, you and I have been talking about the personal a lot and you um, mentioned it uh, in, a, in a fascinating way in your in, in immersion and it, it just comes out in such varying ways in your work. And so you have a quote in immersion um, that I, I, found, um, I found to be really intriguing. You say, time and again, I've imagined a situation I could put myself into for the purpose of learning about it firsthand and then writing about it. I, I wonder if you can just talk about the different decisions you've made um, to include yourself in varying degrees in your work, because even though Ted Conover's in all of them, the way that you appear in all of them is so different um, based on the subject matter and so many different decisions go into each of those books. So the question is... <laughs> <laughs> it's a three-part question. Um, just talk about some of the different decisions you've, and this is your short pieces too, you've made very different you've appeared differently in your books what are some of the factors or what are some of the aspects of the subject in your engagement with it that have mitigated and shaped the way you'll include you your personal life your own experience sure. and background sure so it's true that i've uh in a way made a career of looking for situations that i could become part of workplaces i could join or interesting places to live where I could move and maybe get a job and get to know people. And I have in mind telling a story and being one of the characters myself. So I'm going to be a first person presence there and I need to make sure that character is not getting in the way of these other people telling their stories, but rather is making that possible. So I'm, I'm not the star of New Jack. I'm not the star of any of these books in my thinking. I'm there to hear about the people who are actually interesting and actually living lives that otherwise I couldn't learn about. What's it like to cross the border without documents? I won't know in the same depth they do, nothing close to it, but I'll know more than if I'd never tried. And I want to um, convey that increment that, that I can add by having been there myself but mainly to let them tell the story of it. And that goes for working as a 
a meat inspector, which I, I did in Nebraska for the USDA for Harper's Magazine. You know, I was reading that recently and my main memory of it is the physical demands of using a knife all day to cut into meat. And then the sort of spiritual demands of cutting into meat all day, the same thousands of cows you see lined up when you get to work. And, um, and the people I work with want to talk about that all the time. So we're, we're talking about the same things and they've been feeling that pain in their arms for a lot longer than I have, but I got a pretty good dose of it um, working there two months. And again, I feel it's okay. And in fact, important to talk about that as long as I do not say, now I know what it's like to be you, right? You've got to be very clear about the limitations of this immersive method. It'll get you partway, but it won't get you all the way. I, I called my uh, Aunt Janet in New Jersey, collect early in my train travels, and she was enthralled. And she said the weirdest thing. She said, this is amazing. You've become a hobo. And I said, no, I hope not. I haven't become a hobo. I can call my Aunt Jan and she'll take the charge, right? And I could call my parents for a bus ticket and probably get the money the next day. So I haven't. And I, in a way, I don't want to. I certainly don't want to because, um, you know, knowing what that's like is a kind of wound and that I don't, I don't want to have myself. And I hope, I hope nobody has to go through it. So there's a lot of thinking about the proper role of one's privilege of the ability to, um, to try different things and uh, meet people doing those things and talk about them in a way that doesn't infringe on, on their authority, but rather, you know, draws from it. So it's a, it's, it's different in every case. And it, um, yeah, I, I guess it's hard to talk about much more without getting more specific about a particular project. Well, I think authority is a great way to phrase it and authenticity too. Um, in New Jack, I, I remember how within the moment you can give us your personal reactions, um, your personal experiences, but we're a ways into the book until you kind of give us a glimpse into your home life, returning from the prison, talk about going on that vacation. Um, and, and there was such balance there in terms of articulating um, an honest reaction to what's going on while not also assuming that what you're experiencing is the main story are also bigger than what other people on both sides are are experiencing and that was so deft deftly done and it it was it was such a expert move to it was such an authentic move to wait until we had gotten into the story to take us into how that experience is affecting your life outside of the story thanks um i guess so two more quick questions you talked about this a little bit already and you talk about it in, in immersion too but in immersion you write you know, undercover reporting has a unique, unique power and advantages alongside profound drawbacks. Um, and so we have students here that will go into Washington, D.C. We have students who've been tear gassed, have been at marches, have been have participated in some of the political violence that has happened recently. And so I wonder if you can talk a little bit about participatory, immersive journalism in regards to safety and also in regards to remaining undercover. Sure. So, you know, undercover is not the default position of my reporting. I've really only done it for New Jack and the, um, the meat inspector piece. Normally, I'm uh, very clear when I'm with Mexican migrants, I'm, I'm never going to pass. So I'm very clear about who I am and what I'm doing. That's the best way to be. And I think if you're going to attend a, 
a march in Washington, you're not going to have to be deceptive to join the crowd. Um, and whether it's one of, uh, you know, a thousand worthwhile BLM marches or whether it's doing a different kind of thing, uh, such as the uh, New Yorker writer did who joined the uh, mob uh, of insurrectionists who entered the Capitol, Luke Mogelson. Uh, I guess that was undercover. I actually spoke to him about it, and he said no one ever asked him anything about who he was. And that's really, I think, typical uh, when you're in some kind of political moment like that. People just assume you're there because you share uh, some of their feelings. And I think it's very smart to worry about your uh, well-being. And if you're a professor, to worry about the well-being of your students, because bad things can happen in those chaotic moments. And um, and even if you use great care about your own safety, bad things can happen. So in a, in a way, I guess speaking as a professor, I say to my students, don't do anything that's going to get you hurt. Don't feel you need to take any kind of personal risk to get a good job in my class. But also as a student, you're a free actor. You're a citizen in a democracy that asks certain things of you at certain times in history. And and the professor might not be the first person you'll go to for advice about uh, what to do <laughs> in one of these situations. And um, I think that's just fine. It, it's better if we're all uh, adults and autonomous and we, we can counsel caution and then, um, and then help students work with what they've got. I mean, it's, I think that's really well put too. The students have to be part of being able to create the perspective on the piece and write what they want also has to come with their recognition of, of the danger and what they're just to know at least what they're risking as they go in. Yes. Yes. And it could be really dip, you know, but they got it. We can't tell them it's not going to be what we tell them that lets them know, lets them have that muscle, that discernment, that ability to know um, either way they have to work on that. Right. Themselves. Just a real quick final question. We got uh, one or two good questions from the audience that I'll go into, but um, we talked a little bit about your new project before we got on. I wonder if you could just say a few things about that and uh, where it's at and what you're excited about. Yeah, sure. So um, I live in New York City, but I'm from Colorado and have family there. Lots of family. My wife does too, and <clears throat> love a reason to go back. And uh, a few years ago, my sister told me about visiting a part of Southern Colorado where people could buy land for very, very little money and live off grid, not in a earthship way with all the careful uh, craftsmanship and thoughtful architecture, but in a sort of ad hoc way with solar panels and a few car batteries and um, uh, jugs of water from a restaurant in town. And, and uh, you could grow your marijuana and you can live a sort of frontier life, uh, you know, not right right in the continental United States without going to Alaska or anything. And I visited and I, I spoke with a group that runs a homeless shelter uh, in the town of Alamosa. Uh, and it's mainly a rural homeless shelter. A lot of the people there are rural people and many have tried living out on the prairie off grid. And especially when it gets cold, they uh, they give up and they, they, they come into town and, and this group helps them. The group does outreach to try to prevent people from having to fold up their tents. And I volunteered to help with that as a way of learning more about it. And that was, gosh, almost four years ago now. And um, I've since bought my own land, um, gotten to know a lot of people and um, wrote an article about it for Harper's Magazine. And I'm now 
expanding that into a book that uh, I hope to finish writing this year. But again, I I bought land so I'd have skin in the game, and um, I've spent a lot of time out there, which if I didn't enjoy it would be excruciating. But I've got to say, it's like the it's so opposite of life in New York in so many ways, particularly the, the amount of space everybody gets, but also, um, I don't know, a certain lack of social stratification out there. Things are so cheap. The sun is brighter. The air is thinner. Uh, it's a nice compliment for the life I have here, which I very much want to keep as my, my main life, but it's been a, a great experiment to be out there and uh, sort of living this frontier life, which in some ways seems like freedom and in some ways seems like a, occasionally an urban ghetto where you have a lot of the problems of poor people everywhere uh, from, you know, opiates to, uh, gosh, uh, domestic violence. And, um, you know, there's a whole bunch of anti-vaxxing and, um, you know, insurgency supporting people out there who I would never meet, I think, if I uh, stayed put in New York. So it's been an education and um, and that's that's what my next book will be about. Um, so much of your work is uh, these, throughout these years has been about, there's the theme of, of information, you know, how you get information to, to do something, or if you're in a, an environment like a prison, how information comes into there, you know, how it spreads around. And it's fascinating, is the internet just as, as prevalent or as part of being off the grid there mean that anti-vax conspiracies are coming in different forms, like printed pamphlets as they would in the 70s? No, yeah, no, that, I see why you might think so. In fact, there's the internet, it's just much slower. It's, um, <laughs> it's the same Facebook, but it comes in w with one bar of cellular <laughs> connectivity on your, on phone. Same QAnon, just a little yeah, bit it's, less it's the same. It's the same. <laughs> well, that's fascinating. Well, um, I, I could I could ask a million more questions, um, but we have some excellent questions from um, students. I'll combine kind of a two questions into one. You know, if you could talk about some of the decisions you make in note taking, you know, as you're reporting as you gather in your material, and also if you have any advice to writers, young writers too, about interviewing, about sitting sure. down to interview. Yeah, sure. So um, anybody researching a project needs to have something they can write on and with all the time. I have here my favorite pen. It's a uh, it's a space pen, one of the kind you know supposedly astronauts use that uh, let you write upside down. And on wet paper, it's the best. It fits in any pocket. And then let me show you my just a typical notebook, like a cheap. Staples notebook that fits in your back pocket of your jeans. I carry this all the time when I'm reporting. It's good to have one by the bed because if you're like me, you're going to have thoughts jump in your bed as you're jumping your head as you're falling asleep. And um, and I take handwritten notes on things that I will not that I need to remember at the end of the day when I will type my notes. And typing my notes is much better than writing them out by hand because obviously you can search your typewritten notes and i've created a monster file of field notes for this book i'm working on i actually hit the limit for a single google doc two months ago which is it's over <laughs> it's over a million characters that was almost 600 pages and it said we're not going to save your changes anymore <laughs> and i was like what i was outraged i've been working on this anyway it's now a word doc. Um, 
because those can get bigger. And but I want it all in a single doc that I can search, right? So yeah, typing is so much faster a way to take notes than handwriting. But handwriting is great. You know, you're in the car or you're somewhere where you can't type. So what else? I ask people I'm interviewing almost to help me with my notes. I say, why did you move out here? What would you say are the, the main reasons? And I, uh, I encourage them, you know, to correct themselves or add something later. I'll tell them what I'm looking for. I'm looking for, you know, there's a lot of women who've moved out here. How's it different for women? Oh, you should talk to my friend X. I say, I'd love to. Thank you. And you, you try to get people behind your project and ask for their help and their ideas. Because especially if it's a small group of people with a specialized knowledge, they're, they're the way you're going to find things out, not by Googling. You've got to talk to people and, and ask them to help. So this kind of dovetails into the question about interviews. You know, the old fashioned reporting advice is when you interview somebody, you ask them the five W's, right? The who, what, where, when, why, and how. For the work I do, I want to go further than that. And I want to start with an interview. But then I think you can also, you can move from the interview to doing other things with people. Um, I just feel if you are sharing an experience with somebody, it's going to be worth about 100 interviews for a, a literary piece of writing, a longer piece of writing, a, something that's about more than news. You want to have some experience because that's, that's the rich, raw material that lets you do everything else. And um, so I'm always looking for something, say, if I started an interview, I will, um, you know, I'll say, so what time of year does that happen? When's the, um, uh, it could be anything. It could be the uh, demolition derby in this Mormon cow town down the street. It happens every year. And uh, two summers ago, I went with six local people to this thing, and it's much better with them. So, yeah, I use interviews as a sort of first step. And um, I also I conduct interviews in person, but also over um, Facebook Messenger, over texting, email occasionally, though not so much on this project. And then I just try to write everything down. That's great. I was going to maybe end by asking for advice to young writers, and you articulated some of that so well. I wonder if you could just maybe expand a, a tiny bit on what you see in nonfiction writers coming up trying to make good art and good work at this at this moment in time, if you have any general yeah. <laughs> advice. Well, I obviously um, think it's incredibly important to, if you want to become a writer, you need to read. You need to read books and articles, and you need to find people whose writing you admire, or whose writing makes you want to write. And think about what it is that excites you about that and how you could do your version I think you have to choose your heroes and then think how how could you become somebody whose writing excites you? What could you write about that would really make you want to keep writing? And what are the subjects and what are the approaches you want to take? And what hasn't been done, right? So the whole genesis of, of New Jack was reading all about prisons all the time and um, thinking, what what could I ever add to this that's new? And who hasn't been spoken to in 
all of this? And the, the answer was corrections officers, right? The prisoners have written great books. The best prison books are by, by prisoners, generally speaking. But COs don't write books. Could I write a book as a CO? I'm looking for, yeah, and something new or a new take on something old. Uh, a friend of mine in Brooklyn who's written a lot of young adult fiction just wrote, just did this new translation of Beowulf in which, you know, it uses sort of contemporary dude language. Like there's a lot of slang and, um, and she's, she's gotten just well-deserved acclaim. It's, it's one of the oldest books there is. And she just had a great idea for how to make it fresh. And I think being a student is a, to succeed, you both need to succeed in the usual ways, do your assignments, but then you need to think outside the box a little bit too for things that'll set you apart. And you need to pursue whatever about there is about you that might be singular and see how far it, uh, you can go with it. I think that's fantastic advice. And I try to remind them that they do see things differently than some people who have become more old and world weary <laughs> have been seeing, you know, the same subject the way the people around me have been seeing it for a long time. And I don't see it the way they do at 21, 22. And instead of seeing that as a, you know, disadvantage um, with enough reading and enough work and enough craft, that is an incredible advantage. Oh, it's a huge advantage. Yeah. And, and it's something you and I can't get, right? And so, yeah. Being a writer starting out is to have all kinds of advantages over over me. Also, in terms of knowing what what stories seem important to your generation, that's that's uh, much more accessible to you than it is to me. Well, this has been so great. Um, we've we've been so lucky to have you both within the workshop setting and and within this uh, community setting. I I wish that we were all on our way to nearby place in Fairfax to have drink and talk longer about writing. Mm. Um, so maybe at another point down the road when the when the new book, which sounds amazing, comes out, we'll be able to do that. But in lieu of the real world, this has been so engaging and, and fascinating. And I can't thank you enough for, uh, thank, thank, for doing Thanks this. for inviting me. And thanks to uh, everybody I spent time with this afternoon. Thanks for tuning in to this Watershed Lit podcast. Visit this channel again for more content soon. For more about the Center for Literary Engagement and Publishing Practice, go to watershedlit.gmu.edu.